hello and welcome back to another episode of Drill to Detail, the podcast series about the world of big data, analytics and data warehousing. And I'm your host, Mark Whitman. So today I'm joined by Greg Michelson from Data Robot, coming to us all the way from Boston, where coincidentally I'm taking the family on holiday this year. So, Greg, nice to meet you. And what's the weather like over there at the moment and later on in, uh, say, June? <laughs> hey, it's great to be on. I'm actually in Charlotte at the moment. Ah. Uh, our Data Robot is actually a fairly remote company. Uh, we've got a, a small office of seven or eight folks here in Charlotte. Uh, but uh, I'm actually, I just got back from Boston and it's uh, it's beautiful. I think they had their first 80 degree day the other day. So everybody was out in short sleeves and eating outside and so on. Fantastic. Good. Okay. So Greg, why don't you, why don't you introduce, just introduce yourself then and um, tell us a bit about um, how you got into this industry and I suppose your route into Data Robot really. Yeah, sure. Uh, so yeah, I'm, my name's Greg Michelson. I, I took a rather meandering career path to get here. Uh, I actually started out as a, a Baptist preacher for about 10 years, which was a, a little a little unusual. Certainly, you don't find many data scientist uh, ministers, but uh, yeah, I did that for about, about 10 years. Uh, and somewhere along the way, I, I realized that it was not maybe my calling, right? Not... Um, it turns out it's mostly a PR gig to be a, a preacher, trying to convince people to do stuff they don't want to do. Uh, so, which is great. I mean, you know, it's uh, it's something good for uh, for some folks, but not really how I wanted to spend my life. It was a little different than I expected. So I went back to school. Uh, actually, there's a television show here in uh, in the U.S. that I think was canceled a few years ago called Numbers. I don't know if you've heard of it. I don't know no, if you got it over yeah. there. In, yeah. But it's it's basically a show about a mathematician that fights crime by doing math. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, and so here I am in in rural Alabama uh, watching this show thinking, well, that seems like a lot more fun than what I'm doing now. Uh, <laughs> so I actually went back to school and uh, went to the University of Alabama and studied statistics, got my Ph.D., uh, and from there went into banking. So I worked at uh, Regents Financial. Uh, I built their uh, their first uh, real kind of statistical commercial credit scoring models. Uh, and then I went to Travelers Insurance, where I met the folks at uh, that founded Data Robot. Um, there I did um, you know claim analytics and operational uh, predictive modeling and and so on there at Travelers. Uh, and then you know, data robot sort of started to take off and, and I joined. So I think I was the 38th employee of data robot, something like that. Uh, now we're up to 400 or so. So it's been about three years since I joined. It's been exciting. I, you obviously mentioned your, you know, the thing you saw on TV and so on, but I think, you know, mm. what, what, what motivates you to get into this area and I suppose into banking as well and financial services? Well, I just kind of stumbled upon it, to be honest. It's it certainly back, uh, when I when I went back to school, there certainly wasn't the buzz and kind of the uh, craze about AI and and all that kind of thing that you hear today. Um, I actually was reading in a magazine that that becoming an actuary was one of the best careers uh, in in America, which I now know not to be true. But uh, anyway, I, I went back originally planning to to be an actuary. And uh, I applied to their the graduate school there in math at the University of Alabama, and they didn't want me. They said, you don't have a, an undergraduate degree in math, so you can't get into the graduate program in math. Uh, and so 
So the College of Business was more than happy to have me, and that turned out to be the best thing that could have happened because uh, it was a very applied degree that I ended up getting. And along the way, I started doing some work for uh, for regions as a uh, kind of a, a research project, right? A, sort of an unpaid internship with these guys. And this was right around the time of you know the financial meltdown and and all the model risk stuff that was going on. And we we did some research around model uh, model backtesting and model validation in the banking space, uh, and that turns out to still be a really interesting topic even even today. I don't think I think banks are still trying to figure that out. In fact, the uh, the FDIC here in the U.S. just came out and and changed the rules. So now banks uh, it used to be uh, months ago a few months ago that a bank had to have more than I think fifty billion in assets in order to uh, have to follow the the model risk management guidelines that the, the Federal Reserve put out. Uh, but the FDIC just came out and said, okay, now it's down to $1 billion. So a huge number of, of banks were added in that now have to go through all of this, uh, this sort of rigor and peer review and so on around uh, validating and monitoring their models over time. So uh, certainly regulation has kind of driven some of, of what's happening today. Yeah, I mean, I remember at the time, if you're going back to about 2007, 2008 with the, with the crash then, um, I just started my my um, consulting business around that time and thinking, I thought at the time with the recession that had come that it would kill the market for BI consulting and for analytics and all this kind of stuff, because that was always seen as being a bit of a nice to have in, in the old days. You know, you did your reporting using Excel and maybe used a BI tool. But I remember the banks at the time suddenly became our biggest market because everybody then had to understand risk, they had to understand the position they were in, they had to understand the counterparty risk and that sort of thing. And it was, it was, you know, in the same way it probably was the genesis of Data Robot, it was the kind of genesis of my business at the time. I mean, did you find then that you were surprised at how much, uh, how much demand there was for, for knowledge about businesses and, and modeling and that sort of thing? Well, the first project that I worked on at Regions was a uh, commercial credit scoring model, and uh, they were transitioning off of uh, scorecards, right? So typically when you when you do credit risk modeling, or back in the day when you did credit risk modeling, it, it wasn't really models. It was a bunch of credit guys that would sit in a room and figure out thresholds. So if your, I don't know, debt service coverage is between you know, 0.8 and 0.9, then you get this many points. And if your cash flow is here, then you get this many points and then you add up all the points and that maps to risk ratings and so on. Turns, it turns out that's kind of a wildly inefficient way to do things. Uh, and so we, we sort of discovered kind of this, uh, what at the time seemed uh, pretty exciting, just a plain old logistic regression model, uh, you know, turned out to be massively better in terms of accuracy and and quality and so on. So I think part of it is <clears throat> that the the business is uh, sort of realizing that there's an optimization task there that can turn into real dollars. And certainly we've seen that. Uh, and I think another part is that data collection and storage has kind of ramped up uh, orders of magnitude more than it was before. Um, particularly in the last five to 10 years. And so banks have, you know, these giant bills that they're seeing from their data centers and so on and, and wanting to kind of treat that data as a, an enterprise asset and monetize it and use it to, to be more optimal and efficient in the way they do things. You know, that's, I suppose, not surprising that they would want to do that. 
what, what was the tell us about the I suppose the genesis of Data Robot as a as a startup, and you know the people involved and, and what was the original kind of problem it was solving really? Yeah, it's a good question. So, um, it turns out, and this is not intuitive, or at least it wasn't intuitive to me, that the secret to building the best models is not being a deep deep expert in any one type, right? So if you're a if you're an expert in support vector machines or neural networks or whatever it might be, you're at a big disadvantage over somebody that, say, knows less about any one algorithm but knows more algorithms. Um, so if you can fit a uh, – well, it turns out there's no way, there's no rules of thumb uh, when you start a new problem to that tells you what the right approach is for, for solving it, right? So – on, on one data set, maybe XGBoost is the best model. On another one, maybe it's a random forest. On another, maybe it's a logistic regression model. And you kind of have to try them all to know what the right approach is. And it's not really just about algorithms, excuse me, either. It's about, you know, how do you pre-process the data and, and what kind of, uh, you know, uh, prep do you do from, from the data preparation perspective? And there's literally hundreds of different things that you could do with the data and like I say, there's no way to know what's going to work until you've tried it. And so that's a bit of a conundrum, right? If I'm a data scientist and I want to, you know, I know that every every 1% that I can pr improve the accuracy of my models means, you know, a million dollars in additional profit for my organization, then, you know, I'm going to try pretty hard to build the best thing. But if I have to try every approach and test out every model and, and do everything, then it's going to take me you know, six, nine, 12 months in order to get some some good solutions. And I think you saw that with, uh, say, like AIG, right? They hired a, got a massive uh, science. They called it the, they called the department science. Uh, they had heads of science, hundreds of people, and tried that for a year and I think ended up laying off more than half of them because they just weren't discovering any ROI. It's just a hard problem to try and solve. So the the thing that that we realized, or really that our founders realized, uh, was that the most of the technical work in the process of building these models is highly automatable. And so I can I can set up a computer uh, to to train you know dozens or hundreds of approaches in parallel, take advantage of the the cheap compute that's available today. And bake in the best practices, right? So in terms of how the data is partitioned, how the models are tuned, how the variables are selected, all those kinds of, of kind of important things that normally take days or weeks for data scientists to do, I can bake in the right approach for each individual modeling approach and data prep approach that I take. And so that's how DataRobot was born. Uh, part, of it, part of it is related to Kaggle. So I don't mm. know if you're familiar with Kaggle. Yeah, it's, yeah uh, definitely, yeah. Yeah, it's like Airbnb for data science, right? Mm. So, mm. Uh, you know, winning these Kaggle competitions is all about trying the most stuff. And so uh, our founders were kind of Kaggling by night and uh, building models for travelers by day and, and realized, hey, you know, this automation thing, this could be this could change the way people do it. Uh, and so that's that's kind of how we got started. 
So, so the I mean, I, I again back in my consulting days, I was looking at how we could scale up a, a data science uh, practice within the company, and it very it was very clear to me that there were parts of the work that were about tidying data and preparing data, and and as you say, things that you could imagine being automated or or, or at least handed off to people, maybe on not the same sort of like grade as a data scientist. But is is this something that extends all the way through the whole process, or is data robot about kind of is it is it about automating the, the the kind of the the janitor work for example but not the actual kind of insight work i mean how, how does that kind of fit really yeah so <clears throat> we're not replacing data scientists entirely right there there are some things that people are really good at that it's going to be a long time before for that kind of work starts to get automated right you you by understanding the the context of a business problem and by understanding you know, the, those kinds of details can do substantially better feature engineering than than the machine can by by brute force. Right. So there are there are elements that that the human is going to play a role in. Uh, but having said that, there are lots of pieces of this puzzle that that are sort of ripe for automation. So if you think about the process of, of building these kinds of A.I. solutions, you have uh, you have a task related to kind of data management. Right. So do I have a data dictionary? Do I, you know, is there is there one source of, of data that is accessible to everybody or is it all out in access databases living on people's desktops and, and so on? Right. So there's a model management step. Usually my experience is that organizations spend very little time on the model management step, which turns out to be a big mistake. Mm. Why is that? Why is that? Well, so the the model management piece is one of the two ways to radically reduce the amount of time it takes to build these AI solutions. Uh, the other, it turns out, is is modeling. So if you do the data management right, and if you do the predictive analytics right, everything else is faster. And so you can you can reduce by by you know half to a tenth the amount of time it takes to build these solutions, if your data is well cataloged and your modeling solution is is sufficiently flexible and automated. So the the second bit is is data prep, right? That that's the process that takes the longest, maybe, maybe the second longest. The fourth one and the second one kind of uh, you know compete compete for that that distinction. So this is like joining together data sets and and aggregating things up to the right level of grain and you know all that kind of, of data prep type stuff. Uh, and like you can see how that process would be tremendously faster and tremendously easier if the data, you know, were all in one place and and the the individual columns were well documented and understandable and you know that sort of thing. Um, the third step is analytics um, or predictive modeling or whatever you want to call it. This is the you know this could be something as simple as you know, a uh, SQL query that, that creates, you know, simple charts and graphs for somebody to look at and analyze all the way up to, you know, a, a complex modeling approach that's predicting some key key element of the business, right? Turns out, so th this one here is the second time saver, right? So if, if I, the faster and better I can build those models, the easier it is to get to be, the easier it's going to be to find problems with my data set uh, you know, the easier it is to deploy the models, which is step four, 
the easier it is to everything just becomes easier when the when the modeling is standardized and automated. The easier it is to document the models, the easier it is to monitor them over time, uh, and so on. So then step four is uh, deployment, right? So this this is the the beast, right? So once you have the models, then you've got to integrate them with your workflow, and maybe that means you know scoring. Uh, scoring your entire data set overnight. Maybe it means some kind of a real-time integration with, with some process that that exists. So, you know, th- this is hard, right? IT shops are not used to doing this. Uh, and then the last bit is this consumption piece, right? So ultimately, using the models, consuming the models, that that's where value gets created. So you have to do all that other stuff in order to get there and... Part of that, I think, is why organizations are can be frustrated when they when they start going down this path. You have a lot of stuff to do before you can start getting start getting value out of it. So, so I mean, there's a, there's a lot there's a lot in what you just said then that, that's interesting. And, and taking a so data the data prep side, I mean that that that's that's something that I guess a lot of vendors are doing now. And and is it something where is there is there a particular kind of angle to that or aspect to that that data robot does well? That would mean it's worth using that rather than say tools from say I don't know sort of um, uh, you know the one from Tableau for example or there's ones out but yeah from different vendors is there is there a particular angle the way you do that that is there, or is it just more of a kind of commodity piece that then just gets you ready for the next stage? Uh, well, okay, a couple of things there. The first one is Data Robot is not really a data preparation tool, so. Yeah, so we don't, uh, you know, we don't join data sets, we don't, we don't aggregate data, and so on. What we, what we have done is partner with a lot of these, these vendors that do it. Because you're right, there is, that is a very popular thing to do these days. And so you have vendors like Trifacta, uh, or or Paxata, or some of these others. Uh, and so we, we integrate with them pretty nicely. There is though a really interesting task out there that I, I don't think that anybody has solved very well yet uh and it's something that we're we're working on but and you know i would be glad for somebody to come up with the solution but it should be possible uh by means of automation to rather than pointing at a a flat file data set to point at a database and let let the machine figure out what are the joins what are the aggregations where is the data that we need for these modeling approaches you're right when you say that sort of data prep is is kind of a well-solved problem, but it's not solved very well. You know what I mean? It still it still takes huge knowledge of the data, huge uh, level of uh, kind of commitment from the people that are actually doing it. But nobody's really, as far as I know, anyway. I, I could be, you know, it's not really my space, but it, it'd be great if uh, if that automation task on the data prep side could actually get done in earnest. Right now, most of the tools that are out there are kind of, uh, you know, they're they're tools that that allow somebody to write these queries without writing any code, but they're not really automated solutions. No, no, exactly. I mean, I think there are vendors out there, Amazon Web Services with Glue, for example, is trying to do something like that. I think where it's trying to introspect the data, work out, you know, what data would be like, say, aggregated, what where the joins are, and so on. But as you say, I think you know, data prep tools have solved the problem of how to. How do business users do data do data tidying and ETL? But you still need to know what you're doing, really. Uh, and and it still is a 
I suppose it's a faster task now, but there's not a huge amount of kind of, I suppose, AI insight into that, really. Um, so, so the other thing that was the next bit was interesting was 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 um, the bit where you, I suppose, select the, the prediction target or the bit where you, like you said, analytics or predictive, you know, predictive model there and so on. And that, there's another vendor that I um, spoke to a while ago, the old Beyond Core that then became part of, uh, part of um, Salesforce. Um, and they, again, had a similar sort of thing where you picked the thing you wanted to predict, um, and it would then automate the process of um, working out which model to use and would also automate the process of trying to help you understand how it got to that decision as well. I don't know if you're aware of that product, but is you know, is there some similarities there to, to what you're doing or is there a particular kind of angle you've got again with this? So I, I haven't used Beyond Core uh, personally, uh, but they're – you know, the the crazy thing about this space is that the marketing buzz is sort of dizzying. Uh, you know, if you if you go out and kind of if you go on Google and search automated machine learning uh, or as Gartner calls it, augmented analytics now. So we invented it six years ago and now Gartner's renamed it to, to automated or augmented analytics. But everybody's marketing message is the same, even if they're wildly different products. Right. Uh, you know, if, like if you go on SageMaker, uh, AWS SageMaker, uh, they, their marketing message sounds just like ours, even they're, even though they're more of a deployment solution than they are a, a modeling solution. So it's a bit hard to tell what a product actually does from the way they talk about it because of the hype level, right? The, the BS level is pretty high uh, in the space. Um, you know, the fact that that Salesforce acquired those guys and that they're working on kind of a, a CRM sort of, uh, you know, lead scoring or, or whatever vertical specific solution they're working on is, is, I suppose, interesting. But to be honest, we've never sort of gone head to head against one of these these other companies and, and ended up having a problem. Uh, you know, data, data Robot ends up usually schooling all of them in terms of... <laughs> model accuracy and, and so on. But to be honest, most of these solutions are not pure, you know, not automated solutions. Um, they're, they're more, so if you like the conversation we just had, so if we were, we were just talking about, um, you know, comparing <clears throat> something like Paxata or Trifecta or something like that, which is kind of a gui guided data prep almost, like a, a GUI wrapped around all that code. That's what a lot of these solutions are. Right. They, they still want you to know what you want to do. They still want you to figure out, um, you know, all those individual steps. But you don't have to write any code. You just you just have to like drag and drop. Uh, that's what a lot of these solutions are. And that's that's not real automation. Um, so I, I think that's one thing to kind of be, I guess, aware of as you go out and look at these tools. Uh, there is kind of a, a spectrum from manual where you've got your you know, your R's and your Pythons and stuff like that up to kind of manual but GUI. So things like Enterprise Miner, Rapid Miner, some of these other um, GUI type tools. And then and then uh, in the modeling space, you know, DataRobot is, is a purely automated type solution. So, so curious thing for me is who do you sell? Who 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 is this sold to then? Because the I suppose the obvious person is is the kind of you know, data scientist or people working with ML and so on. Um, within an organization but i could imagine there would be this kind of almost thing where people would say i don't want to bring this in because it might take my job away 
And I'm just kind of wondering who who is the buyer for, who is the buyer for for data robot in an organisation, and how do you go about getting it adopted and maybe dealing with some of these issues and people kind of think it might take the job away as opposed to making them more productive. I mean, what's your strategy around there to get the product adopted in an organisation really? Yeah, that's the thing. So that definitely happens. Um, typically, a pure data science shop is not a uh, uh, you know, it's going to break down into people that are interested in writing code and people that are sort of interested in solving problems and, and generating business value. Uh, there's certainly kind of a population of folks that like their job and don't want it to change and, and so on. But uh, it's not really a question of, is my job going to go away? It's a question of, you know, there, there's plenty of work to go around. I mean, the backlog of, of AI solution projects is is so massive that even if everybody was 10x more productive than they were today, it would still take years to get through the backlog. So so what's our what's our way of thinking about it? The, the, this applies to, to all uh, AI type solutions that an organization is going to try to build. Uh, it always has to start with the business. So the business problem is the number one thing that that you're trying to tackle here. So, you know, if you run into if you go into a kind of your standard centralized data science team in, uh, you know, a, a big Fortune 50 company or whatever, then you're going to you're going to find a, an awful lot of projects that are interesting, you know, or some somebody asked about it. And so it's like. Uh, you know, it's quite the, the business value is questionable, right? So, so we always start with the, the business problem and we say, all right, let's, let's find a team that has a problem and then let's go help them find a way to fix it. Uh, we, we worked with, with one organization where there was a, a very sort of sophisticated, uh, centralized data science team that, that looked in data robot and said, uh, no thanks, right? <laughs> we like doing it our way. Uh, but then the very next week, or maybe a month later or something like that, another organization within the same company uncovered a use case, business people, not data scientists, that was worth something like $300 million a year in additional revenue. Uh, so so the, I, guess, I suppose that there's certainly going to be a place for kind of this bespoke, uh, hand-built, custom-coded uh, predictive solution, AI solution stuff, right? These are your your most sophisticated, most critical, most complex problems. There, there's going to be a place for that, uh, for that always, right? But the even some of the core models in, in various industries, fraud modeling, uh, you know, anti-money laundering, credit scoring in the banking space, you know, pricing in the insurance space, predictive maintenance in the in the manufacturing space, and so on. Some many of those are problems that are ripe for automation, and the 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 possibility of being able to build those faster and in more de- more detailed and more rapid way uh, represents a a real opportunity for organizations to operate more efficiently and beat out the competitors. Mm, yeah. I, I noticed you mentioned, you keep mentioning automation there. And of course, data robot 
is, you know, it suggests it's more than just about machine learning. Do you find that a lot of you, maybe you get called into a, a, an opportunity because it's talked about as being machine learning, but it's largely actually an analytics or maybe a kind of a statistical kind of issue, really? I mean, it, it, how, how do you kind of maybe work with people and their expectations around this? And uh, and does the product itself cover more than just ML? Is it is it analytics as well, for example? Yeah, we don't make a distinction between statistical approaches and machine learning approaches and, you know, the different types of modeling approaches. DataRobot is agnostic to all of that. We we literally try everything that you can think of and whichever approach works the best in a, a kind of a true out of sample, out of time kind of way, then those are the ones that we we show. We show them all. We show them all transparently, but then we rank them according to accuracy. And then the user can pick, right? So, so we the approach that we take is is heavily automated. But everything that we automate, we give the user hooks into. So, if they don't like, uh, you know, maybe the user wants to tweak the way variable selection was done, or the user wants to try some different tunings on the models to see how uh, how they perform, or or the you know what, or the user wants to try you know different algorithms or something like that. Then then all of that's accessible to them. Okay, so it sounds to me like this is a product that's aimed at people who would be knowledgeable about the topic area and need help to kind of accelerate what they're doing, as opposed to it being a product to make someone who is non, uh, who doesn't understand the area at all, able to work in this kind of area. I mean, so it's, is it is it for non uh, non mathematical business people, or is it for uh, is it for mathematical people who need to be more productive? <clears throat> and this is going to sound like a cop out, but it's really for both. Uh, and let me let me explain what I mean by that. <clears throat> some some of the most valuable, uh, most uh, highest ROI use cases that we've ever come across have been built and deployed by pure business people, people who spend most of their days in Excel, uh, who maybe have like an MBA or something like that. Uh, you know, and part of that is because the the low hanging fruit is just so plentiful, right? Like. Uh, lead scoring or, or cross-sell and upsell models or, uh, you know, marketing stuff or predictive maintenance or, or whatever it might be, right? There's a huge amount of, of low-hanging fruit out there that isn't super technical to build. So you don't have to, you know, there's not a, a massive risk to the business if, if you know, you make a, a an error or something like that, where that's not true for you know, a lot of these, you know, if you if you mess up a, a credit scoring model, then you could have, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of bad loans on your books like in a week. You know what I mean? So those are much more critical and those require a, a much closer eye. So there really is this concept of risk associated with modeling that we we pay pretty close attention to. And so the idea is that you want your your smartest, most sophisticated people to be spending time on your highest risk, highest criticality models. And you everything else, let's push it down to people that, you know, can use tools in order to to win. Right. So I think what we'll see over the next five years is that business people are absolutely forced to become more technical. Uh, the role of the pure business person is becoming uh, – or roles that are for purely business people are becoming scarcer and scarcer. And those people are going to have to become more technical strictly because that's that's where the market is going. Uh, the tools that are being created today are so good that people without 
you know, math and computers and programming backgrounds are able to do these technical tasks. Uh, and at the same time, jobs that require a purely technical skill set. So, uh, you know, PhD level computer science, physicists, you know, mathematicians that are that are out there building these AI solutions now. Those are going away, too, uh, because the tools are just getting better and better. And so uh, purely business people are going to have to become more uh, analytical and technical and purely technical people are going to have to become more business savvy in the industry that they work in or neither one of them are going to be able to find jobs. So talk, let's just talk about um, sort of the financial services and banking industry. I know that's the kind of area that you, you focus on now. Um, and I've worked in that area myself and, and, and I, can, I, can, I can imagine how the stuff that you're working on, the products you've got would, would help in that area. But what, what I guess where are the kind of the, the, the really good use cases and, and examples of data robot being used within financial services banking that you can maybe kind of talk about just give us a flavor of it yeah there there are literally hundreds so let me let me just hit the hit the highlights one that's that's been on my mind lately is related to the BSA AML stuff the uh, bank secrecy anti money laundering kind of financial crime type stuff um, it turns out that the way that it works and you probably know this already but uh, the way it works is that banks have rules and there are vendors out there that have kind of systems for flagging potentially uh, potentially worrisome transactions. Right. We're, we're talking about spotting potential money laundering here. Uh, and the way that it works is that these systems will flag transactions and an investigative team will look at those transactions and they will decide whether or not they warrant further investigation. And if they do, they'll fill out a SAR, a suspicious activity report that they sent, then submit to regulators. Uh, and then they never hear about it again. Uh, so it's a black hole, right? And the regulators require banks to, uh, to do this activity, uh, but they never give them any feedback. So they can't actually get better at it. Right. There's no no. Yes, this was actually money laundering. No, there was this wasn't. Right. So at least that's how it works in the U.S. Uh, I'm not super familiar with what how this this process works in the I think, in the it's, UK very, or, I think it's very similar. And I think reasons they give is that, you know, if, if they give feedback, then it could be a way that uh, money launderers could then use that feedback to, to kind of to, I suppose, to, to make it harder to trap them in the future. But but, yeah, I can see why it would be a bit of a frustrating exercise, really. Yeah, the, it turns out, though, that the pain of not getting the right SARS submitted is very high. So if you miss something as a bank, it's a big problem. Uh, and so all of these rule-based systems err on the side of more flags than fewer flags. And so these, these banks have developed huge teams of investigators to try and find all of these potential SARS and not get in trouble with the, their regulators. So... So uh, where machine learning comes in is that what you can do is actually use whether or not a SAR is generated as a, as a target variable and take all of these alerts that are being generated by your rule-based systems and try to predict which of those flagged transactions are likely to generate a SAR. And it turns out that this is dead easy. Uh, and you can banks can eliminate half of all their investigative work by by just trying to predict whether or not a SAR is going to be generated. And they do you can do that without actually losing any of the SARs. So you can 
you know, you can you can maintain that same level of, of scrutiny and that same level of compliance without doing as much work. And that represents millions of dollars in savings in terms of, you know, investigation and, and people costs and, and, you know, all the inefficiencies that, that are in that system. Uh, and there are a few a uh, few different use cases like that in the uh, the financial crime space. And that's your area you focus on now in data robot, isn't it? So presumably that's quite a big area for the company as a whole, really. Uh, that that's just one. Uh, AML is is one opportunity. Uh, you know, there's there's hundreds. Let's say, um, how about fraud? Fraud is massive. Uh, transactional fraud, deposit fraud, uh, identity fraud. Uh, the the tricky thing about fraud is that it has to be real time. So I need to be able to score millions of transactions within uh, milliseconds and return that information at the point of sale so that I can block potentially fraudulent transactions. So, you know, who hasn't had it happen that you go on vacation and you you get to the hotel to check in and your card gets declined, right? Because you're, you know, you're 2,000 miles away from your house. And they think that somebody's stolen your card and they're, you know, they're they're blocking all your transactions. That always happened to me for a while, actually. Yeah. 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 It's the worst. And the reason that it happens is because fraud monitoring systems today suck. Uh, that's why it happens, because people are using these rule based systems. Uh, you know, is the card present? Are you more than 50 miles from your home? Is it you know, is it whatever? Right. Whatever the rules are. But. A, uh, AI solutions, right, using machine learning to identify these fraudulent transactions is hugely more accurate uh, than uh, than doing it with a, a rule-based type system. And if you can get it implemented, uh, and it's not hard to do, it's just it involves touching systems that are, you know, critical to the way that your organization works. But if you can get it implemented, it represents huge savings in terms of of both in terms of blocking fraud, but also in terms of not alienating your customers who then have to call you angry uh, to get your get their cards turned back on. You said a minute ago that it's not it's not difficult to do. So so so, and I can imagine you know what you just said there, the idea of of, of kind of um, using machine learning and, and and so on to spot these things is a fairly obvious use of this technology. I mean, obvious as much as it's a you can imagine how it would work very well in this area. So, so what, again, what does Data Robot bring to that? Then, given that it's a an obvious kind of like solution to solve, what does your company's product bring to it that you uh, that customer couldn't do themselves really? Well, you know, I mean, all of this stuff is open source, right? So mm-hmm. anybody mm-hmm. can do anything these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, you, anybody can download, mm-hmm. you know, Python or R and mm-hmm. fit a random forest and mm-hmm. and go to town. Not anybody knows how, right? Mm-hmm. So. Not not everybody's going to know how to partition partition the data right, or select yeah. variables, or tune mm-hmm. the models, or or deploy them. So it's not a matter of needing the software in order to enable the capability. Mm-hmm. It's about finding a way to do it that's cost effective yeah. and that is that's that's going to work right. Because mm-hmm. hiring and retaining mm-hmm. PhD level. Uh, data scientists is a losing battle these days. I mean, if you mm. just search LinkedIn for data scientists and just do like a, an informal survey here, mm. you'll find people that change jobs every nine to 12 months. Oh, no. And oh, no. Yeah. Every, every, t- every time they do it, they get 30% more money. <laughs> and so 
it's crazy. It's literally crazy uh, the way that it works. And so imagine you're kind of a mid-tier bank in mm. kind of a non-central market. Mm. You know, if you're not in London or New York, mm. that's just not very happening. You know what I mean? If you're based in, uh, you know, if you're based anywhere else, what mm. are you going to do to get those people to come work for you so that you can have a, a, a kind of a cutting edge kind of a solution to these sorts of problems? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's interesting. I mean, the other thing you touched on there as well was you talked about, um, I suppose, putting this into production. And, and, and I know certainly from the work that I've been doing in, in product uh, at Qubit, you know, putting things into, you know, creating an ML pipeline, almost like ML as a service, or taking these models and then running them like, say, maybe in a con- in a container or whatever. There's a skill to that, really. And and there's a lot of um, use of, say, things like um, TensorFlow, for example, within Google Cloud and all those kind of things. How, how, how does Data Robot fit into that? Is it a case of um, you can work with those platforms? Is it a case that it's a kind of replaced that all with Data Robot? How, how do you finish that last stage really and put this into production and make it into a scalable system for customers yeah it's a good question the this so if you think about how big organizations do it today um you know you've got data science teams that you know they they're SaaS. it's a SaaS shop or an r shop or a python shop or whatever and you know you got your R coder that's doing his his thing and he's writing his uh, his code and his model and he he gets a model that he's happy with. Well, nobody's back end is written in R, right? So if, if if you're trying to if you're trying to implement a model that was built in R, you've got a you've got a task there to convert that R model into scoring code, right? And so you know this is one of the obstacles for for more sophisticated models. Because the way organizations have kind of tackled that problem is by building systems that can handle, uh, you know, like linear additive type models, right? Coefficient times value plus coefficient times value plus that sort of thing. Uh, And that's the only way that they have to implement these models. And so um, that's a problem. And finding a way to fix that problem is, I think, really relevant to to the way that these things go um i think i think the solution is an api based approach um so we need to the industry needs to abstract away that scoring code problem uh and so i personally i think the best approach for for these these types of deployments is to build those models and then have some kind of a a solution that abstracts away the scoring code uh, maybe an API where you can send it data and it sends you back a prediction. Uh, maybe a container, like you say. Uh, maybe like a Spark binary or something that you can you can ship out here. Yeah, there's lots of them, but the ones that won't work are ones that require model coefficients or that have to work in, you know, you have to be able to include them in a SQL query or, or something like that. That's that's the challenge I think is is being. Uh, flexible enough to support the kinds of models that are going to generate the most ROI for the business. Uh, and so that's, I think, where where organizations are, are kind of finding their way. I think the API solution is going to win. I, I think, you know, you see, yeah, I think that's the, I think that's going to end up winning. Uh, you see, there's lots of vendors out there like, you know, like Google Analytics or or Azure ML or some of these, and those are all API driven. 
the sad part is those are all complete black box models. Uh, but uh, like Data Robots API, that you know that works very nicely, right? It's horizontally scalable. It's uh, you know it supports low latency, high throughput, and so on. Um, so you, you got to find a way to combine that model transparency with uh, a flexible deployment strategy so that you can actually get your your models out there, uh, regardless of whether it's real time or batch or whatever your SLAs are or whatever mm. it might be. So, okay. So, so la- I mean, last thing I want to ask you, and actually, it, it's a nice to you actually from talking about black boxes and, and APIs and, and abstraction and so on is GDPR, you know, that, that suddenly become the big deal over in Europe at the moment where everyone suddenly realizes they need to comply, they need to comply with this uh, in the next few kind of weeks. Um, and and the, the other kind of meme I suppose going around is that GDPR is the end of uh, black box machine learning algorithms where uh, we can't account for how a decision is made and, and, and so on. Is that something that you're hearing as an issue over in the States? Is it something that you've been thinking about? Is it perhaps a storm in a teacup, as we say over here, or is it going to change the way we kind of do um, predictive modeling and scoring and so on in the future? Um, well, I don't think that it's a small thing. It, it's, it's a huge deal. Uh, but I also don't think that black box models were really ever acceptable. So uh, certainly there may be organizations that were kind of willing to go down that road. But for the most part, organizations have been really afraid of, of that kind of thing. Here's, so there, there are equivalents in the U.S. Uh, for example, when you, when you buy a house in America, uh, you fill out a, a loan application and they, they go and ask the credit unions for your, not the credit, the credit agencies for your credit score. And then if your credit score is not perfect and nobody's is, then they're required by law to send you a letter that says, here are all the reasons why your credit score is not perfect. Right. You have too many open accounts or you have, you know, and that's that same regulation that the that the GDP or at least part of it. I mean, GDP is much broader. But the relevant piece of GDPR for for modeling is that it requires organizations that make decisions based on models to be able to explain those decisions in, in human readable language. So what we've done in DataRobot is, uh, and we actually did this before GDP, GDPR even started to, uh, uh, to do its thing, uh, is we created something called prediction explanations. And so we use a... Um, you know, we use a resampling approach to actually produce the reasons that the prediction is what it is. So if the you know, if the uh, model says that your transaction is likely to be fraudulent, then it'll also say, oh, we think this is because, you know, your your transaction is coming from, you know, I don't know, Nigeria and it's, uh, you know, it's at an online store and the card's not present or whatever the top reasons might be. Right. So. Uh, so providing those reason codes turns out to be super important from an internal adoption perspective, but now also from a regulatory perspective. And I don't think the U.S. is far off from that, certainly not with the, the Zuckerberg stuff that's going mm. on here. So. Mm. <laughs> and do you, find, do you find, I suppose, that automation of the process and having repeatable processes around this, that, that kind of helps in explaining how things have happened and, and kind of auditing and that sort of thing? I mean, the fundamental way that you guys do things, does that, does that help really? It's massively helpful. Um, here's, <laughs> and I realize I'm biased in saying it, but just think about, so I can't tell you how many times I have put together a solution and I've done every check that I can think of. 
you know, I've che- I've reconciled my data and I've I've gone over my code and I've showed it to other people and so on. And I'm still worried that maybe when I coded this thing up, I've made an error, right? Uh, not an error that's prevented the code from running properly, but an error that somehow introduced some kind of a bias uh, into the the results of the model. Maybe I've inadvertently excluded some rows, or I've I've uh, duplicated some some observations with a bad join or something like that. And these kinds of these kinds of errors that can be introduced and maybe never even be noticed uh, are insidious. Right. And and they are a result of having to code these models up bespoke custom every time. Uh, so so the the capability of of having uh, standardized best practices that are baked into the process every time that are uh, auditable and well checked and, you know, consistent and, and so on over time is a huge huge way to eliminate risk from the process. So now I don't have to worry about, is my implementation of uh, cross-validation, is it working properly? Uh, and I don't have to worry about it because, you know, we check thousands of data sets uh, every day uh, and validate that, you know, the results are consistent. And anytime we change the code, we we run all kinds of consistency checks and so on. And so the the ability to have you know, that kind of best practices baked in is a, a huge benefit to the process. Yeah, excellent. Like having a proper software development methodology as well. So, so um, yeah, absolutely. I can I can see that. So, um, okay. So, I mean, Greg, it's been great speaking to you on this and it's been uh, really interesting topics to talk through. How, how does someone find out a bit more about Data Robot and, uh, and maybe about the work you do in, say, banking, financial services or the product? Sure. So our website is datarobot.com. People are, are free to, uh, you know, drop in and, and find some of what we've uh, uh, we've got out there. I'm, I'm Greg at datarobot.com. So people are feel free to send me an email. I can connect you to the right folks. Um, but, yeah, it's uh, it's a, it's an exciting time to be alive. There's there's cool stuff that's going on everywhere. So. Yeah, so, yeah, fantastic. It's been great. Well, it's great, been great speaking to you. Um, thank you very much for doing the doing the interview with me in the, uh, the episode. And uh, yeah, we look forward to uh, putting it out online and uh, and uh, maybe speak to you again in the future. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks, Ben.